Earlier this year, the Netanyahu administration in Israel proposed a series of judicial reforms setting off a constitutional crisis. The proposals would empower the Israeli legislature, known as the Knesset, to override decisions of the Supreme Court of Israel and to control the appointment of judges to the court. The proposal was met with large-scale protests across Israel by hundreds of thousands of demonstrators who argued that they undermine judicial independence. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. To help us understand the debate over judicial reform in Israel and the similarities and differences between the American and Israeli constitutions, we're joined by two leading scholars of comparative constitutional law, and it's an honor to have them both. Professor Yuval Shani is the Hirsch Lauterpach Chair in International Law and former Dean of the Law Faculty of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He has written about the constitutional crisis on the legal blog Lawfare and elsewhere. Welcome, Professor Shani, to We the People. Thank you. Nice being here. And Professor Tom Ginsburg is the Leo Spitz Distinguished Service Professor of International Law at the University of Chicago Law School. His latest book is Democracies and International Law, and his earlier books include how to save a constitutional democracy. Professor Ginsburg, it's an honor to welcome you back to We the People. Great to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, Professor Shani, uh, in the face of mass protests, uh, the Prime Minister Netanyahu has temporarily put his proposals on hold. Where are we at this moment in the crisis and what does it say about this moment in Israeli constitutional history? Yes, so uh, we have heard in January the government uh, introduce a very comprehensive reform package, which uh, looks at uh, uh, radically changing the balance of power, you could say, between the judiciary and the other two branches, which are uh, incidentally or not incidentally controlled by the same coalition government, the, the executive branch and the legislative branch. Uh, from this package, only one bill is ready for passage before the Knesset, which is the bill uh, which is designed to change the way in which judges are elected in Israel. We will talk a little bit about that uh, more further down. Um, that uh, bill is currently waiting to be passed. It can be passed by a vote essentially any time in the Knesset. They would need 24 hours or 36 hours just between the announcement of the vote and the actual vote. But given the, uh, the degree of pressure that this government has uh, encountered, uh, the protests and, and many other um, manifestations of domestic and international pressure, the prime minister has uh, announced earlier this week that the coalition would not uh, try to pass the vote this parliamentary session, but rather would deal with it in the next session, which starts uh, in about a month. In the interim, uh, the parties, uh, the coalition and opposition parties, uh, have already started meeting uh, under the auspices of the Israeli president, who in Israel is, a, is essentially um, uh, a ceremonial figure which has some uh, moral authority, but very little legal authority. And they are trying to negotiate um, a settled bill, I mean, uh, a proposal that would be acceptable both to the coalition and the opposition, 
the prospects of this uh, currently uh, do not appear to be very high that this would succeed. So we may end, uh, we may find ourselves uh, in one month in exactly the same spot we have been this uh, earlier uh, this week. So this is where we're at. Professor Ginsburg, you have expressed concern that Israel could be the next Hungary. There is a temporary respite in the face of mass protests. Is this a historic victory for liberal democracy in Israel or uh, a temporary respite in the face of mass protests or something else? How significant is the delay? Well, it's hard to know. I wouldn't say it's a historic victory yet, but it certainly was historic in the way it played out. Anytime you see you know, that percentage of people on the streets in any democratic country, it's just a very significant thing. And the way I read it, it was the population coming out to enforce certain principles, which they thought, you know, were sort of quasi-constitutional in nature. Um, the immediate triggering event, of course, was the firing of the Minister of Defense because of his stated opposition, his changing his view uh, to say, you know, this reform proposal is really tearing the country apart. Let's take a pause. Netanyahu fired him and the people came out and said, that's not acceptable. So in other words, they didn't want it rammed through. Uh, but, you know, it's hard to say whether this is, um, you know, the long-term implications. We have to see what happens with the bill itself and ultimately what happens with the balance of power in the Israeli government. Professor Shani, tell us about the differences between the Israeli and American constitutions that led to this crisis and help American audiences understand the distinctive features of the Israeli Supreme Court that provoked opposition from Netanyahu's party. Right. So uh, Israel, unlike the United States, does not have a written constitution. What it has is a series of basic laws that were passed over the years. You could see these basic laws. You can uh, you can uh, uh, regard them as a ramp constitution or a constitution in the making. Uh, but the critical uh, feature of these uh, basic laws is that they are very easy to legislate and also very easy to change. So any government majority, uh, any coalition majority, which is in the Israeli system, 61 seats out of 120 seats in the parliament, which is the Knesset, uh, which is something that in a parliamentary system every government has, because that's the condition to form a government, is having 61 seats. That means that the, that the government, through the Knesset, can change at any moment the basic laws and change essentially the structure of power in the country and also uh, add or, uh, or omit basic rights which are currently uh, entrenched in these basic laws. Now, what this government has tried to do is use its narrow majority in parliament to fundamentally change the balance of power between the executive and legislative branches on the one hand, and the court, on the other hand, uh, the court in the last 30 years has issued a series of cases that have, have um, stood for the proposition that the basic laws are, in fact, a RAM constitution. And that uh, on the basis of these basic laws, uh, the, the judiciary has the authority to strike down legislation that violates basic rights and uh, upsets the balance power between branches of government. Uh, also, uh, and before that, it has used its, its authority to strike down um, administrative activity that it considered to be disproportionate or patently unreasonable and the like. And the reform proposals were seeking to take away uh, most of these powers from the court by limiting the grounds under which the court would be able to exercise judicial review, 
by making it much harder for the courts to reach decisions that strike down legislation by introducing a supermajority, by allowing the Knesset to override a decision by the court. And finally, and perhaps most critically, by changing the way in which judges are elected so as to transform the system from a system that is uh, essentially professional in its orientation, where professional jurists are selecting judges, uh, to a system where politicians, essentially coalition politicians, are selecting judges. Now, all of these aspects are very different from the American system in the sense that you have a hard a constitution which is very difficult to amend, you have a bill of rights, you have a strong system of separation of powers, you do have political involvement in the appointment of, of judges, but that actually is often by a, a multiplicity of checks and balances that exists between the different branches of government, between the different houses of Congress, between the federal and the state levels, which Israel simply does not have in Israel. The only uh, counter uh, power that offsets the the very uh, significant powers that the government and the Knesset has is the Supreme Court. And taking away these powers from the Supreme Court would mean in the Israeli context, basically uh, unlimited power exercised by the coalition government. Basically, unlimited power by the coalition government. Uh, Professor Ginsburg, tell us more about the proposals that have been put on hold in addition to judicial appointment. Professor Shani just told us that it would allow the Knesset to override decisions uh, as well as taking away review of administrative decisions for reasonableness. What were the particular controversies that led to the proposals and, and how did these uh, so-called reform proposals that would allow a majority of the Knesset to challenge the court uh, compared to the similar attempts at court packing in an international perspective. Yes, I mean, what this, you mentioned Hungary before, and what this has in common is that it's a relatively narrow majority, a, you know, a temporal majority just right now that seeks to undertake in its moment of power uh, very fundamental changes in the structure of the state and the relationship among the, the branches of government. But I think to really understand why we got here, you have to go back a little bit and look at the history of the last 25 years, 30 years, uh, which is what's called the constitutional revolution in Israel that began really in 1992 with the passage of a couple of basic laws that referred to human rights. And the chief justice of the time, Aharon Barak, used those uh, the passage of laws reflecting basic rights to say, this is totally different. Now we have a constitution in Israel, and it's a constitution which we, the judges, can exercise the power of judicial review over. So, you know, like the United States, judicial review isn't actually written uh, into any basic law, but the court took the power. And that alone, you know, makes it sound a lot like the United States. What was different, I think, is the way that that court used the power. And it's very controversial in Israel. It became a very big uh, topic of debate among legal scholars, among uh, the public. The court generally used it to protect liberal values in a country where there's lots of conflicts about the nature of the state. And uh, there was somewhat of a backlash against that court because of its very expansive view of the role of judicial power. There were some changes in the judicial appointment system thereafter. And in my opinion, I'm you know not Israeli, but observing from afar, it seems to me the Supreme Court kind of got the message that we shouldn't be you know deciding everything. But that 
battle over Aharon Barak's court, in some sense, is what's led us to today, because conservatives have, in Israel and various forces, have just sought to rein in the court, saying you don't have democratic authority. All right, so now they start to act. And this is the interesting thing. When you look at each of those individual reforms that Professor Shani just uh, laid out, you can find some example in some other country which uses those things, and it's still a democracy. It is the combination of them that makes the uh, thing so particularly insidious from my point of view. Um, so, you know, for example, in the United States, we have a politicized uh, appointment process. Well, we're still a democracy. Um, and there's a lot of comparative evidence on this that the more politicians are involved in appointing Supreme Court justices, the more politicized the court will be. So you have that kind of little pressure for politicization. But then they combine in Israel that it change with um, the ability of the Knesset to overrule judicial decisions. And again, this isn't unknown. I mean, it's um, what we find in Canada. They have something similar where uh, provinces and the national government can, notwithstanding a Supreme Court decision about basic rights, decide that, no, we're going to go ahead with this anyway. The United Kingdom, the interpretation of the Human Rights Act is similar. So again, the proponents say, well, look, those countries have it. They're democracies. This has got to be okay. But think about the combination of the two. You have politicization of the court's membership, and then also a check by the parliament, by 61 members of the Knesset, on any decision which the court you know, happens to go against the parliament, it really weakens judicial independence very, very severely, the combination of the two. That's, I think, why there's so much fear about an unconstrained parliamentary majority. As well, I should add, I think there's a political dimension where it's this particular majority and their agenda because of the, the very fractured nation, nature of the coalition includes um, some very some elements which aren't at the mainstream of uh, Israeli society. Lots of debates in that society about the role of the religious groups, the settlers who want to, you know, more actively constrain Palestinians in the West Bank. There's a lot of contention and a lot of distrust of this particular coalition. Many thanks for that and for mentioning the crucial role of uh, Chief Justice Aaron Barak. I had the great privilege of studying with him in law school in the 1990s and his transformation of the court as you described, uh, culminating in the, the crucial uh, decision in the 1990s, which gave the Israeli, the Supreme Court, the power of exercising judicial review is as crucial as you say. Uh, Professor Shani, what is the counter argument by the critics of the court uh, who claim that the appointments process is in the hands of elites and not representative of governing majorities and, and object, as Professor Ginsburg said, to decisions regarding the settlement. Is, 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 is there a principled case in favor of so-called judicial reform, or is this a purely uh, partisan, anti-constitutional clash? As Professor Ginsburg said, there are some, um, there is um, concern in conservative circles about judicial overreach. There is uh, a very, I think, well-established narrative in the Israeli right, which uh, which per, which maintains that although uh, the Israeli public is generally right wing oriented, and in most elections the right wing parties win the elections, the court is a bastion of liberal ideas, 
And as a result, uh, the right wing is not in a position to realize its, uh, its policies, its election platform, because it is being stopped by these judges who are leftist and elitist, etc. And I think there is something to be uh, said in favor of the proposition that in a system where the court is uh, a counterweight to government power, uh, and in in a system where most of these governments do tend to lean rightwards in their orientation, it would be almost inevitable that the court would uh, therefore constrain a, a right-wing government by uh, enforcing uh, more liberal values. Uh, there have also been uh, specific instances where uh, I think reasonable uh, people may disagree whether the court should have gone um, on, the, on, on specific uh, paths and trajectories, uh, for instance, in intervening with appointment of uh, ministers because they, are, um, they have been in the past uh, uh, charged with criminal offenses and the like. So, so there is even within uh, my own legal faculty at Hebrew U, there are those who think this is something which courts shouldn't be dealing with. This is something for the people uh, to decide. Uh, but I think by and large, these criticisms are very much uh, overblown because they ignore uh, two things. First, uh, there have been also many decisions of the court which have been quite conservative in their orientation. I mean, and people on the left are often very frustrated as well with the court for, for instance, refusing to rule on the legality of settlements in the West Bank or for uh, allowing very dubious uh, security measures such as house demolitions and limits on family reunifications of Israeli and Palestinian citizens. So, so to portray the court as, as this uh, fringe uh, left uh, organization is, is very, I think, is very exaggerated. The court sometimes uh, gets it here, sometimes gets it there. The fact that it's also unlike the U.S. Supreme Court, it doesn't sit in plenary in most cases, but rather in smaller panels of three judges, five judges, means that there could also be fluctuations that uh, relate to the identity of the judges, of the justices. Uh, and the second thing which I want to note is that, as Professor Ginsburg has said, uh, things uh, have changed quite significantly from the 1990s. The composition of the court is now very different. Uh, there have been right-wing governments, and despite the rhetoric, they have been able to influence the composition of the court through the existing appointment system, which actually gives the coalition a right to veto appointments in the same way that it gives the judges themselves a right to veto appointments, which means in reality that uh, bargains are struck between the judges and, uh, and the politicians for the election of candidates. And we have seen the court become progressively more and more conservative. And we are now at the point which is actually quite close to a tipping point. So, so, so to maintain that the Israeli system um, has a court which is completely off the charts is not right. And to, uh, and to maintain that the, uh, that the right doesn't have an influence on the composition of the court is also uh, very inaccurate. Professor Ginsburg, in addition to the appointments proposals, we've discussed others, including uh, proposals to limit the court's authority to strike down legislation requiring a supermajority of judges, having an override clause that would allow the Knesset to reenact laws, 
and saying that the Supreme Court lacks authority to exercise judicial review over the basic laws themselves. Could, could any of those proposals be enacted consistently with judicial independence? And what, what are the bare minimums for judicial independence that would be required to sustain an independent judiciary in Israel as this crisis plays out? Right. So thinking about judicial independence broadly across, you know, all countries, it's, uh, first of all, it's important to recognize that there is another genuine value in democracy, which is judicial accountability. You know, certainly don't want judges just deciding things that are completely insane with no check on their power. Um, and in, when you look at the history of democracies, including our own, this is often um, a story of sort of calibration, of moving, you know, in one direction or another, depending on the court's exercise of power, depending how popular its decisions are. You can think back to the court packing plan, um, you know, in the United States, which was an effort to sort of signal to the court that maybe it should, you know, restrain itself and such. So this is something that happens within democracies all the time. So the changes to the judicial appointments process, which have already happened, have increased the numbers. Now, seven out of nine members of that uh, judicial council, which are required to make an appointment. And that, I think, led to politicians, the political members of that body, to have some say, a veto, if you will, over you know appointments, which strikes me as a kind of infra-democratic change you know, that one can see all the time as countries, you know, as judges and democratic majorities interact in constitutional systems. Uh, to me, again, it's the combination of all those things which makes it rather worrying. You know, I guess one, you know, again, either one of them, I suppose, the, those major changes uh, to the appointment process or the override on its own would be a major change, uh, but wouldn't really signal, you know, such a body blow to judicial independence. In other words, this is the kind of thing which, in principle, you want small moves. You would like to have a broad consensus in society. And this is actually what the president of Israel, who's a powerless politician in their system, but what the president of Israel said, you know, there's just too much contention over this. Let's get, you know, supermajority agreement before ramming through such a major change. And that's where I think we really see this qualitative difference. If I might, Jeff, I'd like to say a little bit about the reasonableness uh, thing, which you had mentioned before. So um, what is reasonableness? Well, in our country, this would be known as administrative law. Administrative law is what you rely on if you go to apply for like a driver's license or something and the person says, I don't like your last name. I'm not giving it to you. That's unreasonable, right? And of course, we have our own doctrines about what exactly this means. But in Israel, lacking a written constitution, much of what we would call administrative law, the law constraining government, comes down to common law doctrines that actually started with the British, because uh, the British were, of course, the colonial power there. And um, in Britain today, reasonableness is sort of the backbone of administrative law. Now, the Israeli court has been very creative with this. And I think what is really upsetting this particular coalition is that the court has used reasonableness doctrine to actually... Um, interfere with who can run for office and who can sit in the cabinet and the Knesset. Um, and so it raises really interesting issues, which actually many members of, or several members of this coalition uh, have a personal stake in the judge's interpretation of what's reasonable. And to be more precise, the argument in Israel, the judges have created a doctrine, very vast, very far-reaching, more far-reaching than I think is justified, that not only can... Um, convicted 
criminal, someone who's been convicted of a crime, not sit in the cabinet, but even people who have been indicted should not sit in the cabinet. And that's very far-reaching to me. You know, this is one of these things where, in my view, the court of public opinion also matters. And you, you can see some um, sort of parallels with discussions about Donald Trump and should he be indicted and, you know, what would happen if he did. Can someone, you know, win the U.S. presidency if they're a convicted criminal? Yes. The answer is yes. You can run from jail and win the office. But in Israel, that's not the case. And so I think uh, this is a long way of explaining that this reasonableness doctrine, yeah, it does represent judges interfering with ordinary decisions, but that's, I don't think, why we're seeing a push against it. I think we're seeing a push against it because of the personal interests, uh, personal and political interests of several members of the coalition. And that's another one of these things which really does kind of disturb me about this moment. If it was based on a principled argument that the judges have gone too far and we're just recalibrating slightly, that's one thing. But um, it's a really major change pushed through with the bare majority in which arguably, at least there's the appearance of personal interest on the part of some of the proponents. So that's why I think it's uh, more concerning than just a normal kind of change. Professor Shani, tell us more about the personal interests of supporters of this plan, including Minister of Justice Sharif Levin and, and Prime Minister Netanyahu and about this reasonableness debate, uh, which very much evokes one that we had in the United States when courts during the Lochner era were striking down laws under the reasonableness uh, doctrine, and that led to FDR's uh, court packing plan. And tell us about more modest proposals to reform the reasonableness doctrine, including by the Israeli uh, president, Mr. Herzog. Yes. So, so um, f first, it's important to clarify the court cannot strike down legislation for lack of reasonableness. This is only a doctrine that applies with regard to administrative norms. So that's a very important uh, distinction. Uh, with regard to uh, the personal stakes for the actors, well, first and foremost, of course, it's the prime minister. The prime minister is standing on trial for uh, three corruption charges. Um, by the way, the court did allow the prime minister to, uh, despite the fact that he has an indictment, the court did uh, allow the prime minister in a case decided three years ago to uh, maintain the position of a prime minister and in a way created a difference between eligibility to serve as a minister, where, where Professor Ginsburg is right. The court has um, refused to allow service as, uh, as, as a minister while under an indictment. And uh, being prime minister, which the court deemed a more uh, political and less administrative decision uh, with regard to which the doctrine uh, is inapplicable. But of course, Netanyahu, the fact that he is standing on trial, colors um, a lot of what's happening in very uh, different light because uh, some say he is out there to get the, the legal system as a form of revenge for uh, bringing him to trial, but there may be uh, either uh, other more specific uh, plans that he and his inner circle are thinking about, which could be, for instance, uh, changing some of the criminal laws under which he was indicted so as to uh, remove them from the law books and, and therefore prevent the court from uh, convicting him on that basis, specifically uh, the charges pertaining to what is called breach of trust, which is a, a central anti-corruption law that Israel has. 
Uh, there are also uh, speculations that by weakening the court uh, and also the legal advisors that uh, are very influential in Israel, uh, Netanyahu is paving the way for firing the current attorney general and nominating someone else instead of her, uh, with a view that a more uh, friendly attorney general or uh, chief prosecutor would strike um, a plea bargain with him. So, so, so you, one really cannot divorce uh, the specific agenda of Mr. Netanyahu from the plans that we are seeing. Uh, there is also, as uh, Professor Ginsburg alluded, another very important uh, player here, which is Minister, uh, well, member of Knesset, Arye Deri, which leads one of the major parties in the coalition. Uh, Deri is, is an interesting figure in this story because he was the minister on whose back the court has reached a decision 30 years ago that uh, indicted uh, persons cannot serve as ministers. Now, uh, Derry has been uh, also barred from uh, office because he was convicted once again uh, a year ago for tax fraud. Uh, and the court has held that under these circumstances, although he received a suspended sentence, appointing him to a, a minister, and according to the coalition, uh, agreement he is supposed to enter the, the the role of minister of finance in two years after being convicted of tax fraud is um, patently uh, unreasonable so he also actually he is currently out of the government and is waiting to re-enter uh, the government once some or all of the reform laws would pass. Uh, you also mentioned, and with this I will close, the Minister of Justice, Yariv Levin, who has been passing this legislation. I think for Levin, uh, there does not appear to be, I, I should emphasize, a personal motive. Levin is a very strong uh, ideologue who has been, to his credit or not to his credit, has been arguing that the court should be cut down uh, for many, many years. Uh, what is interesting is that Netanyahu put him in the position of Minister of Justice, knowing that this is what his uh, agenda uh, uh, is. So I wouldn't say that he is driven by um, by any specific uh, uh, agenda, but rather by an, uh, by any specific personal agenda, by but by an, a deep ideological commitment to uh, an idea that uh, the ruling majority is the one uh, and only element which a democracy should have. Now, with regard to the reasonable uh, compromise regarding reasonableness, uh, I should mention that the president did uh, publish three weeks ago um, a proposal, a compromise proposal, which he called the People's Directive, which uh, offers uh, some uh, way to um, some way out of the crisis, some uh, uh, formula that he believed that the parties could come around which uh, we are not certain that that would happen. But uh, it, with respect to reasonableness, the president's proposal did introduce actually a couple of changes vis-a-vis -vis the existing law in the sense that appointment to the position of ministers would no longer be something that the court would be uh, authorized to, uh, to review. Um, and also decisions that are taken by the government in plenary would also be shielded from uh, review under the reasonableness doctrine, as opposed to other administrative uh, law doctrines, such as conflict of interest or disproportionality and the like. Professor Ginsburg, say more about President Hertog's proposal, uh, which would harden the basic laws requiring a supermajority of the Knesset to pass them, would uh, recognize the court's power to strike down laws, 
would have a supermajority requirement on the bench, two-thirds from judges hearing constitutional cases, as well as uh, refining the grounds for striking down laws. Is, would this be consistent with judicial independence in an international perspective? And, and compare it to what you've called the Commonwealth system, where uh, parliaments do have the ability to override Supreme Court decisions. What are the minimal criteria for judicial independence uh, that a reform plan would, would have to meet? Yeah. So first of all, I don't know that there's you know universal <laughs> rules about exactly what constitutes judicial independence. It's always quite contextual, um, and it reflects a particular combination of institutions. I'd like to um, say a word about that proposal, and then actually hear what Professor Shani thinks about it. To me, this is an effort to clarify the Israeli Constitution, to come to a modus vivendi between these various branches, which right now. Um, you know, are all normatively legitimated by their own basic laws, none of which is higher than the other, um, all of which trace their legitimacy ultimately back to the country's declaration of independence. But of course, um, the country could not come to a actual constitutional agreement during the first Knesset, and they took the decision to postpone that you know, uh, constitution making to the future, and of course, it's never been done. So I see the proposal as like, let's come up with a way that these institutions can work together um, that means that at least the basic structures are not open to partisan contestation. And uh, for that reason, I think it's a valuable thing. I don't think Israel's quite in the place to have a actual, you know, full constitution-making process. The society's quite fractured, but uh, I'd be quite interested to hear what Professor Shani thinks. Please, Professor Shani, what do you think of President Herzog's proposals? Well, I think uh, I agree with uh, Professor Ginsburg that it tries to square the circle and to offer um, some basic rules of the game uh, that uh, actually listen attentively to both sides of the debate. Uh, on the one hand, preserving basic uh, democratic features, separation of powers, uh, judicial independence, rule of law, uh, and in a way, uh, doing away with the more uh, dangerous and harmful parts of the Minister of Justice's package. But at the same time, uh, going in the direction of uh, making it harder for the court to strike down legislation, insisting on a supermajority also on the bench, so it would no longer be possible to strike down a decision uh, by uh, a 6-5 to five vote, for instance, on the Supreme Court or 8-7, uh, to seven, uh, but rather there will have to be a two-thirds majority on the court, which is something quite exceptional. In, uh, in comparative uh, terms. And this is actually quite a bitter pill for those who uh, are concerned about human rights in Israel, because uh, you have to understand that this is part of the equation. Uh, as I said before, there are also some minor adjustments uh, with regard to reasonableness, etc. So, so I, I'm of the view that on the whole, it represents at this point in time, a reasonable, I don't know if I can use the term, but a reasonable package, uh, and that a continued stalemate, and even worse, I mean, deterioration into uh, a full-fledged constitutional crisis is a much more uh, risky uh, gamble than, than following the plan. So although, I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, I would have some reservations on some specific items, most significantly the two-thirds majority on the bench, uh, I think it is, a, it is a fair compromise under the circumstances. Professor Ginsburg, uh, supporters of the protest said that this is an inspiring example of a moderate majority of tens of thousands of citizens rising up on behalf of the principle of judicial independence. 
Is that right or not? And are there any other international examples of mass demonstrations in the streets on behalf of judicial independence that result in a back down by the political actors? Uh, sure, we do have some examples. There was, uh, you know, a, about a decade and a half ago in Pakistan, something similar happened where the military leader, Musharraf, who was, uh, you know, um, had taken civilian power, uh, wanted to reign in the Supreme Court. And the lawyers came out and demonstrated. And, um, you know, that created a larger public demonstration. I think there's something similar here from my understanding. I'm far away. But, you know, when you have a proposal like this, it's rather technical. Like most people don't really know how judges are appointed in this system. And so what it required was like a very active um, sort of civic education program by the civil society, by academics who really were concerned about the court. And, you know, that kind of built and built. And then I think the president's intervention saying maybe we really need a consensus on this. There were a lot of steps over the last two months, really, um, and longer, that led to the actual, you know, mass demonstration, which finally got the government to listen, which is, of course, when, uh, after the firing of the Minister of Defense. Ideally, you'd like it not to come to that. You'd like the government to see the demonstration, say, well, you know, maybe there isn't consensus here. But this coalition was really intent on ramming it through, and they still might be. Um, and so I do think it's something we do see from time to time. It's actually relatively rare to see that percentage of citizens show up in the streets and certainly over courts, but it has happened before. And in my view, politicians would be wise to listen um, when they see that level of support for something as obscure as judicial independence. To have citizens show up in the streets on behalf of judicial independence is relatively rare and politicians should listen. Uh, powerful words indeed. Professor Shani, tell us more about what Professor Ginsburg called the civic education uh, program by academics, the role of the president, and, and how we came to this remarkable set of affairs where there was mass mobilization on behalf of judicial independence. So before commenting on this, if I may, I will just add two uh, notions. I think the Israeli case, well, it, it's still, of course, too soon to, to tell what, what, how the story would end. But in terms of um, the fact that there has been such a, a significant and quick uh, pushback. We were, I mean, those who opposed the, the, the legal reforms were assisted by two uh, by two um, aspects, uh, by two um, things. One is that the Minister of Justice uh, announced uh, outright what he's planning to do. So the whole scheme was actually uh, put forward. Uh, so uh, people were. Um, it was easier for people to understand that this specific. Um, uh, adjustment of the judicial selection process is actually part of a bigger picture, which is about uh, basically marginalizing the court and uh, concentrating all powers within the executive and legislative branches. So in a way, the, the government in itself, you could say, um, played into the hands of its critics by exposing its cards too soon, something which didn't happen in some other uh, backsliding democracies. And the second thing is that we did have the, uh, through the work of people like Professor Ginsburg, we were already quite alert to what has happened in other democracies, specifically Hungary and Poland. So, uh, it's, uh, it's, so civil society in Israel knew that this is 
on the basis of comparative law experience, this is the first stage in backsliding and therefore uh, we should take a stand now, not wait for these reforms to be passed because once the composition changes, of course, you are conducting the battle for democracy under much more difficult uh, conditions. It is true that uh, many of my colleagues, I mean, uh, in academia, have um, have really uh, in a way, recruited themselves uh, in, in a very impressive and a very total manner to this fight against uh, the judicial reform, uh, not doing only what academics normally do, which is write op-eds, appear in conferences, write uh, blog entries and papers, but also engage in a much more uh, grassroots organization and activity, including media appearances, uh, a reaction team, which was very active in social media, also offering uh, their services to anyone who just wanted to hear uh, about what are the implications of the judicial reform. So there were meetings in private citizens' houses uh, to which uh, professors, constitutional law, uh, public law professors would simply go meet with 30, 40 people in a living room and discuss with them what would be the implications. And of course, also working uh, very much hand, some of my colleagues even went uh, to, you know, to pubs in Tel Aviv, uh, speaking with people on the spot about what are the implications of these reforms. So I think this mass mobilization, not only of civil society, but also of the academia, did play a role in, in at least alerting uh, people to what is at stake. And it is remarkable, and I must say that as an Israeli who's been uh, often very critical of the Supreme Court myself for some of this decision. It's it's quite remarkable that you hear people on the streets shouting slogans which go like uh, liberty, equality, the Supreme Court. Uh, so this is something we, we never actually thought that actually the, the Supreme Court would be the cause of, of a mass protest in Israel. This is something, and of course, Demokratia, Demokratia. I mean, this, this idea that democracy is really the rallying cry, uh, basic rights in the Supreme Court. This is something that, have you told me this, uh, I mean, uh, three months ago, I would have said is quite uh, quite impossible. And yet, I mean, this has been at really at the, at, the, at the center, at the front and center of the protest. Liberty, equality in the Supreme Court, absolutely remarkable. And the vision that you've just given us of academics uh, in conversation with citizens in, in pubs and in living rooms is an inspiring example of constitutional education at its best. Professor Ginsburg, as you continue to engage in this education as this crisis moves forward, what uh, what are you telling uh, Israelis we can learn from Poland and Hungary in order to avoid democratic backsliding uh, and, and authoritarianism? And what should citizens be aware of uh, moving forward in terms of the, the bare minimums for maintaining judicial independence? Yes, you know, there famous line in the, quoted often in the United States from Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78, that the judiciary is the least dangerous branch, lacking the power of the sword and the power of the purse. Uh, the Polish scholar Wojciech Sadursky, who himself was a target of the Law and Justice Party, um, has written that actually most of these populists act as if the uh, judiciary is the most dangerous branch because it's the first thing that they go after. And that's exactly what happened in Hungary. They got the constitutional court. And then once you have that, it legitimates everything else because the rule of law requires generally that we listen to the courts. So our era of the last three decades when judicial independence, rule of law have become these important sort of component parts of democracy actually rendered them somewhat vulnerable to that particular line of attack. 
The Polish case is extremely complicated and interesting um, in that the, the, the government that existed before law and justice actually tried to pack the court on the way out. And then the law and justice party came in and didn't recognize those justices. And there's actually some legal argument that there is no legitimate constitutional court of, of Poland right now. And yet they're making decisions. So uh, it can get pretty messy. Um, I do think that there are some principles. We should want courts that you know, are deciding, generally speaking, in accordance with the law as best that they can decide it. We all know that that's somewhat of a fiction, that there are, are real politics to judicial decisions. Um, but we want courts, in principle, to be able to stand up to the government of the day. That's really important. And if the courts are packed, as they are increasingly, with low-level party functionaries who are not respected jurists, who didn't go to the top law schools, but simply are going to do whatever the telephone call from uh, from the party leader tells them to do, then we're in big, big trouble. So insisting on professionalism, on good credentials, on structures that allow the judges, should they wish, to um, you know go against the government of the day are really important. How do we get that? In Europe, there's a regional architecture, of course, and there's been a lot of pushback from the European Court of Human Rights, the European uh, Union system, um, against Poland and Hungary for the attacks that they have done on the judiciary. And yet, they haven't really been very successful. So I think Part of the lesson for the rest of us is that we have to think more about that regional architecture and how to make it more effective. Um, and I think we do have some examples from other parts of the world, but, uh, but in any case, a regional structure is really important. Norms of professionalism are important. As my example about Pakistan suggested, bar associations are really important, right? Um, civil society groups, the academics that uh, Professor Shani was talking about can also be important as part of a network of structures to defend judicial independence when it's under attack and to insist on the basic minimum principles which we would want. Regional structures, norms of professionalism, uh, civil society and academics, all powerful guarantees of judicial independence. Professor Shani, uh, last thoughts as, as you look forward to the months to come, what would you say are the basic requirements of judicial independence, and, and how can Israeli citizens uh, argue for them to be maintained? Well, for us, the line in the sand appears to be with regard to the court, the uh, lack of politician control over appointments. This is for us a critical aspect. I mean, having a country, again, without a fixed constitution, without a strong also public uh, tradition of uh, of uh, constraint in 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 policy that affects uh, human rights, it's really down to the to having an independent and professional judiciary. And for us, the line in the sand would therefore be that the appointments system would be such as that uh, a system in which politicians would not be able to uh, make decisions about appointments without some involvement of uh, of the professional. Uh, parts of the system, uh, the, the judges or, or the lawyers or, or some other independent professionals. Uh, this is for us at this point in time uh, the greatest concern. Uh, going forward, I think it's it, it's quite clear that the Israeli system uh, that uh, has been muddling through for many years, uh, constitutional system is no longer sustainable in the sense that we have uh, reached uh, too close to the end of the cliff 
And even if we will survive this time, uh, you, you know, the, the push against existing structures, there may not, next time we won't succeed. So therefore, moving closer to a constitution, finding ways to make it more difficult to change basic laws has become for us a, really an existential uh, question. An independent appointment system, ensuring politicians can't make appointments without professionals and moving closer to a constitution. Uh, last word, uh, Professor Ginsburg, um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of Israeli uh, constitutionalism? You know, I think this has been just such a remarkable period, as we've talked about. You know, it's incredible to see people show up in defense of judicial independence. And, um, you know, ultimately, it is going to be the public that decides in the sense of who they elect, um, right? And so if politicians start to see that this movement actually might have some um, role in reviving the opposition in Israel, you know, then that's going to change their calculus and such. So I uh, don't want to venture a prediction for how it's going to play out, but I do think it's going to be pretty interesting and it's going to be absolutely critical for the future of the country and ultimately thus for the, for the Middle East more broadly. Thank you so much, uh, Yuval Shani and Tom Ginsburg, for an important, uh, clarifying, and crucially engaging discussion about the future of Israeli constitutionalism and the Israeli Supreme Court. Professor Shani, Professor Ginsburg, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Today's show was produced by Lana Ulrich, Sam Desai, and Bill Pollack. It was engineered by Kevin Kilburn. Research was provided by Liam Kerr, Emily Campbell, Sophia Gardell, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple. Recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional and historical illumination and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the dedication to learning of people like you from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission, friends, by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.